Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Does your family include a dog or a cat? Would you like to be better educated on how to advocate for their health naturally? Then why not check out all of the amazing resources on naturallyhealthypets.com? Dr. Judy Morgan is a trusted advisor and a regular guest here on the Dog Eared Podcast. She has over 38 years experience as an integrative veterinarian, acupuncturist, chiropractor, food therapist, author, speaker, podcast host, and owner of Dr. Judy Morgan's Naturally Healthy Pets. Dr. Judy's goal is to change the lives of pets by educating and empowering pet parents just like you in the use of natural healing therapies and minimizing the use of chemicals, vaccinations, and poor quality processed food. Head on over to naturallyhealthypets.com where you'll discover healthy product recommendations, comprehensive courses, the Naturally Healthy Pets podcast, informative blogs, upcoming events, and so much more. Again, that's naturallyhealthypets.com, the place to learn how to give your pet the vibrant life that they deserve. Does your dog do? Well, answering that question today is a fantastic Michael Hingson. We're going to be talking about his New York Times bestseller, Thunder Dog, the true story of a blind man, his guide dog, and the triumph of trust. All right, Michael, does your dog do... My current dog is a guide dog, so he guides, and we can talk and should talk about what that means. But the other thing that he does is that he is convinced he is a lap dog. And if anyone sits <laughs> on the floor, he is not subtle about very aggressively crawling in your lap. <laughs> That's my kind of dog. Yeah, he's a black lab. And, and what a guide dog does, just to, to continue that thought, is... They guide. They don't lead. People always say, oh, your dog led you down the stairs or your dog leads. Your dog did this. No, that is not true. The, the reality is what a guide dog does is it guides. That is to say, it makes sure that we walk safely. The dog doesn't know where I want to go, nor does the dog know how to get there. And I don't want my dog to know that. 
And of course, what happened on September 11th is a good example of that because if the dog memorized a way to go and that way happened to not be available, which wasn't an issue for us on September 11th, but nevertheless, the issue is still there. So if the dog memorizes a way to go and that way isn't available, then we're going to have a battle over who makes the decision. Well, I am supposed to be, as Cesar Milano would say, the pack leader, the person who makes the decisions, the person who leads the team. But I also know that there's a time that the dog gets to be the leader of the team, and that is when it's guiding. It is making sure that we're walking safely, and so we're walking along, and suddenly the dog stops. There's going to be a reason for that. And my first reaction is always, why'd you stop? There's got to be a reason. Let's check it out. But that's what a guide dog does. And so what does my dog do? He guides. He's a lap dog. He's a black lab, and he's a cutie. Oh, I bet. Now, when did your love of dogs begin? Oh, gosh. I think um, even when I was living in Chicago before I was at the age of five, our our uh, my cousins and aunt and uncle had a, I think it was a collie named Skeets. And um, so I've always known about dogs. We got dogs soon after moving to California. And back in those days, there was a lot of distemper where we lived. And so a couple of them did not live overly long. But and we tried to keep dogs vaccinated, but sometimes they got distempered before we got them vaccinated. But we've had dogs for most all of my life. So dogs are, are a part of me. I got my first guide dog at the age of 14 and have been using guide dogs ever since. So Alamo is number eight. Oh, wow. Well, you know, that's what I loved about the book your whole story and the different guide dogs you've had in your life and the way your parents treated you and that they, they told them you were born in 1950. Right. And they were like, well, just put him in a home for the blind. And your parents are like, no, we're just going to treat him like any other kid. And you're riding your bike around at six years old and the neighbors are calling. So give us a little bit more about your parents, about how you grew up and how that shaped you. Well, my parents did exactly what you said. When the doctor said, put him in a home, they said no. And so I went home with them um, and uh, about th- and they discovered that I was blind about four months after I was born. And that's when they said, stick him in a home. And my parents rejected that. But I grew up not even really thinking about being blind. Um, I knew there were things I wasn't doing that other kids were doing. But still, in Chicago, where I was born, South Side, tough neighborhood, you know, yeah. um, I, I went to the candy store, as I describe, with, with my brother and cousins and so on. I walked around my neighborhood. I did a lot of stuff in the house. I was never bored. But I, all know, I also knew that there were things that I wasn't doing, like reading. Um, when I was four, the school district, we were in at the at the insistence of my parents and other parents of children who happened to be born prematurely and who became blind, um, started a kindergarten class. So I learned Braille. And again, I didn't really even think a lot about being blind. And then at the age of five, we moved to California and I didn't have access to some of those tools. So I more sat around in class than other kids for kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. But then between third and fourth grade, the school district decided they were going to have a, a what was called a resource teacher. That is a teacher who would be at a campus. And so all of us um, who were blind, and there were enough blind kids who had come to the Antelope Valley in California that 
they started this resource program, we all went to the school where the teacher was and spent time with the teacher. So for me, it was learning Braille and things like that. Um, and then I was able to participate more fully in classes by reading out loud like other people and so on and started to learn more about uh, doing the, the kinds of things in classes that others did, um, studying with real books and even getting my weekly reader, which was a weekly newspaper that came out with articles for kids and all that. So I did all of that. And then when I went into high school, we decided that it was kind of probably important for me to have a little bit more assistance in traveling because even though I traveled without a dog or a cane through junior high, going to a new campus that was going to be a whole lot more crowded, it wasn't going to be as practical for me to travel around without something to help. And I had not learned to use a white cane. <clears throat> but what I did learn to do was to be aware of my surroundings. I knew where I was. I could hear what was going on around me. So when my parents applied for me to get a guide dog with the help of a friend who had a guide dog who we got to meet, was a teacher at Edwards Air Force Base where my father worked, I was accepted. So between eighth grade and high school, I went up to, um, to school in Northern California and got a guide dog, uh, Squire, who was my first of eight dogs. So Squire and I went to high school and then to college. And we went from there. I finally did learn to use a white cane when I was 18 between college or between high school and college. And the reason I learned was because I was invited to participate in a program for blind students going into college. And one of the courses they taught was about mobility and orientation. And so Squire did not go to the six-week program with me. And the... I, I love to put it this way. I think the mobility people thought they had a live one because I had never used a cane before, but I learned to use a cane in five minutes. And, and I tell anyone today, I can teach you how to use a cane in five minutes, teaching you to have the confidence to use the cane, teaching you the skills that go along with using a cane takes months. And, but, but those are skills that I had learned. So using the cane, it was a matter of getting used to another way of getting information that was trivial because I already knew how to get around. And within a day, I was walking around the UC Santa Cruz campus where this program was taking place uh, without any difficulty whatsoever. But it's all about learning how to understand and be aware of your surroundings, which is, of course, a lesson that has been with me my whole life. Oh, yeah. You know, I went to UC Santa Cruz for my undergrad, and I absolutely loved it. Now, I believe the woman that uh, had the dog was Sharon. Sharon Gold, yes. We met when I was, I think, nine. Um, we read about her in the newspaper. My father didn't even know she was teaching at Edwards, and she was teaching on base kids. But he contacted her and invited her and her friend, Cheryl Pickering, to come and meet with us, visit us. So they came for dinner on a Sunday, and Sharon brought her guide dog, a German shepherd named Nola. And I spent time with Nola out in the backyard, and I was small enough that I got a hold of Nola's collar, and she decided she wanted to go somewhere, and she dragged me around the backyard. <laughs> so it was pretty fascinating. I didn't see her work, but but nevertheless, um, you know, I started to learn about it, and my parents started to learn about it. And, and so five years later, when it was time for me to go to high school, we had applied to Guide Dogs for the Blind, which is where Sharon got her dogs, and uh, we were accepted. 
That's awesome. I love this. You say in the book that you found out you were getting a, a guide dog while in your eighth grade PE class, you were jumping rope and you didn't even know your parents applied. I didn't. And you, right. And you had to be 16, but you were 14 and they let you in and you had to stay in a dorm. And it was mostly, it was adults, right? Were you it was adults. Team? Yeah. What was that like? There was one 16 year old. Well, you know, I'd never lived alone with a bunch of adults and you know, there were, there were things to learn, but you know, we did okay and it worked out pretty well. And I came home with Squire and Squire worked from 1964 to 1973. And, um, when I graduated, he did as well. He got a degree. He was getting pretty old and moving slower in 1972, but he got a degree in lethargic guidance from the (laughs) chancellor. He was called up to the stage and he got his degree. So, uh, you know, it was kind of fun. That is really wonderful. I like that you talk about the way people treat blind people. For example, the cane. So my best friend from college, he has a little bit of sight, but at this point, not much left. And he would have benefited from a cane, but he wouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. He said, because of the way people treat you. If you can expand on that. In society, we're taught that if you're blind, you're not capable. You can't do much. It doesn't matter what you use or don't use. If you're blind, you are not as normal as anyone else in society. I mean, I even had a kid come up once to me in an Ikea store and say, I'm sorry. And when I say, well, why? Never met this kid before. He said, well, because you can't see. You know, it's that kind of attitude that is so pervasive in society. For many years when Gallup polling organization was doing surveys, and I knew about it back in the 80s and 90s and so on, one of the top five fears that people faced, they said back then, wasn't having a disability, it was going blind. Because Mm. people think if you don't have eyesight, you just can't do anything. Eyesight is not the only game in town. And we need to learn that. Um, I So I'm sorry about what your your friend's attitude was. Um, For me, it's the same thing with a guide dog, except that in my case, People always want to pet the dog right? and they want to talk to the dog and it doesn't matter whether the dog's doing a job. And sometimes we have to have some pretty strong words about it. When people come up and ask me if they can pet my dog, if I'm busy and don't have time, I tell them they can't. And I've had a couple of people who still continue to pet the dog oh, after God, that. So disrespectful. And, well, it is. But when they do that, the dog is a dog. The dog is going to look at them and so on. And the first thing I'll do is correct the dog. Not in a violent way, but I will tell the dog to no, pay attention, hop up, do whatever. Right. And then the people say, well, but I was the one who was petting the dog. You shouldn't yell at the dog. I said, no, you got the dog in trouble. The dog knows better. I'll deal with the dog and then I'll deal with you. You should know better too. So you got my dog in trouble. <clears throat> um, and with a cane, you know, it is the same. People think we're helpless. If I'm standing at a street corner waiting to cross, I might wait. Um, a traffic light cycle to make sure that I hear which way the traffic's going. People think, of course, what that really means is I can't possibly cross the street myself and they'll grab me and try to pull me across, even if it isn't the way I want to go. So the reality is that blindness isn't the problem. So story, this past March, I happened to be at a hotel in Los Angeles, actually in Hollywood. And um, I was there with my niece and nephew, and we um, had just gone and put our luggage in our room. We were only on the third floor. So we were walking downstairs and all of a sudden I heard everybody screaming downstairs. And I asked my niece, Tracy, what's going on? And she said, we just lost power in the hotel. And we discovered not just the hotel, it was, was all around us. And 
Um, we were there because we had invited to be in the audience at the Kelly and Ryan after Oscar party. Um, oh. uh, well, someone entered me in the contest to to get a, a ticket, and I didn't even know it. And suddenly on the Tuesday before the Oscars, I get this call saying congratulations. Well, anyway, so we were going down the stairs, and people started screaming, and Tracy told me that, well, the uh, the power just went out. And I'm sitting there going, so what's the problem? Which is, of course, true. What's the problem? The difficulty is that what most everyone in this world doesn't realize, whether they like it or not, all of you have as much a disability as I do. You're light dependent. You don't function without light. You have never learned to function without light. And the result of that is <clears throat> that when you lose power, you lose lighting, the first thing you do is scramble to find an iPhone or an Android phone or a flashlight or maybe even a candle and, and figure out how to light it. The problem yeah. is you got to have that light to function. Don't demean me because I don't need that. The difference between you and me is that there are so many of you, we have focused so much on covering up your disability of light dependence that mostly it's not an issue. It doesn't change the fact, however, that you still have it. And so the bottom line is light dependence is as much a disability as if you want to call it light independence. But the only difference is that technology covers yours up. And we're very, 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 very slowly catching up to starting to provide me with more tools to be able to address living in the world as well. Yeah. And speaking of tools, in the book, you mentioned the KNFB reader. Tell us about this. So in 1974, Ray Kurzweil, an inventor and a futurist, um, had developed technology that would allow a scanning device to look at a printed page. Back then, it wasn't taking a shot of the page. It literally was building up an image line by line. But he could build an image of a page and then use a computer with software that, that he and people developed to be able to recognize the characters on that page. And what Ray did that was so unique <clears throat> was he didn't care what the type style was or the print style or combination of the two on the page were. It read, period. And he used commercially available technology to send the information that his software created and speak that information out loud. And the result of that was that he developed a reading machine that would read print out loud. And he contacted, among others, the National Federation of the Blind, the largest organization of blind consumers in the country, and the only organization that really took him seriously um, enough to say, well, you say it works. Uh, we're not convinced, but we'll come up and look at it. But we don't want to read whatever you're going to put on the machine. We're going to bring our own stuff. And if it reads it, then we'll talk to you. Well, they did, it did, and we did. So the result was that um, Ray needed funding to finish the development, and we created a program with Ray to um, actually um, buy five of his machines, and that's how he got funding. We bought five machines at $50,000 each, a prototype, and took them out of the lab and put them around the country for blind people to test and help provide recommendations that would go into a final production model. I was hired after graduating with my master's degree in physics and after taking a few administration courses. In 1976, I was hired to literally live out of suitcases and travel and live in hotels around the country for 18 months to coordinate 
deal with the, the project, deal with the people who were learning to use the machine in places everywhere from New York to San Francisco, and then write the final report <clears throat> of what needed to go into the machine. Then I was hired by Ray to do that. And after being at the company doing human factors studies for a while, I was called in and told that I was going to be let go because I wasn't a revenue producer. And then there was a pause and the guy who said that um, said, unless you want to go into sales. And as I <laughs> love to tell people, I decided in a nanosecond, I'd lower my standards and go from science to sales. And I've been selling ever since. But the, but the reality is I've always wanted to be a teacher. I got, as I said, a master's degree in physics and a secondary teaching credential. I've always liked teaching. <clears throat> and what I learned is that sales is really a form of teaching. And so I went into sales and I've been, I've been doing that ever since. Um, and along the way, Kurzweil was purchased by Xerox and all of the salespeople were let go because Xerox really wanted the technology. So I had to find other employment. And part of that was I had to start my own company, which I did. And then I went back into the workforce that eventually led me to being in the World Trade Center, opening an office for Quantum Corporation. On, and we opened the office. And then we were going to be doing some teaching seminars to teach our reseller partners how to sell our products on September 11th. And so I was in our office on the 78th floor when the planes hit. And you know then I escaped. But later... Um, and Ray had always said the machine will eventually be portable. When we did the original prototypes, it was a 400-pound two-unit device that sat on a rolling cart to move it around. But um, he predicted that starting around 2000, 2001, it will get smaller. Um, the technology will advance. Well, it did. And then eventually it got to the point where it was a device that could actually work on a cell phone. And the first cell phones that it worked on were cell phones using what was called the Symbian operating system. The ones we used were from Nokia. And you could point the camera on the phone at a page, push a button, and it would read the page. And so I, I actually was invited by the Federation in the end of 2008 to start um, a distribution process to sell that machine because the Federation didn't really have the sales resource and knowledge to do it. So I did that for several years while, because of September 11th, also being a public speaker traveling around the country and speaking and talking about teamwork and trust and inclusion and talking about the human-animal bond and lessons to learn from September 11th and so on. So that was the first KNFB Reader Mobile. Now it's an app on an iPhone and an Android phone. Oh, that is incredible. You know, I want to jump into September 11th. And you write, quote, I know I have to stay calm for Roselle. Roselle is your guide dog at the time. If I show fear or begin to panic, she will pick up on it and might get scared too. It's important that Roselle doesn't sense that I am afraid. If that happened, it would make it harder for us to get out. But then you talk about this undercover fear all around us and this general panic level, yet she doesn't react. I love this you write. She is in the moment, secure in herself and her work. Well, the the issue is <clears throat> she's always going to look for me or look to me for guidance because it's my job to be the pack leader. So as we were going down the stairs, no matter what else was going on, I kept encouraging her, what a good girl, Rosa, good job, keep going down the stairs, what a good dog. The other side of it that I didn't really think about so much at the time 
was that people were listening to that and they were following me down the stairs because they felt, well, if I could be calm and confident and go down the stairs, then they could as well. And Roselle was just doing her job, wagging her tail and going down the stairs, doing what she needed to do. But if I had acted nervous, <clears throat> I've seen it so many times with guide dog users who get tense, who get nervous. They they're lost or they feel they're lost and they, and they react in a, in a stressful way, the dog's going to feel that and the dog is going to get stressed out. My boss is getting stressed out. What's going on here? Um, yeah. Because they're looking to us to know what to do or at least to know how to behave and what to think. So it really is important for me, no matter what is going on, to stay calm for my guide dog. And in this case, with Roselle. So I kept encouraging her and there were a few times that people started to panic on the stairs. Um, and so like at one point, David, Frank, my colleague who had come in for our seminars said, Mike, we're going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. And, and as I love to tell people in talks that I give as a person with a teaching credential, I took that secret course that nobody ever talks about called voice 101, how to yell at students. <laughs> and, you know, not really true, but anyway, but, but um, when David said, we're going to die, we're not going to make it out of here. I just said in the sharpest voice that I could, stop it, David. If Rosella and I can go down these stairs, so can you. And he said that that brought him out of his funk. And then he went down the stairs. And then immediately, I again started telling Rosella what a good dog she was. But David then decided to travel a floor below me to get his mind off of what was going on and just shout up to me everything he saw on the stairs. And the reason I mentioned that is because that is exactly what he did. And as he was shouting to me, I don't even think he was realizing it, but what David was also doing was acting as a focal point for anyone in the sound of his voice. Hey, Mike, I'm on the 44th floor. This is where the Port Authority cafeteria is. We're not stopping, going on down the stairs. And he did that all the way down. He gave everyone who could hear him uh, a point where someone above them or below them was okay. So that had to help. Tons of people, thousands of people on the stairs feel more secure because he was okay. Right. Um, and so that was important. The, the reality is that we need to learn to control fear. It doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid. It doesn't mean that I wasn't afraid. Um, although I, I did have a lot of knowledge because I had spent time learning what to do in the World Trade Center. I spent time with the Port Authority security people, the fire prevention people, other people, and worked to um, understand everything that I could about where things were in the World Trade Center, what the procedures were, what would happen in the case of an emergency, because I'm not going to read signs. So yeah. I needed to know all that because the other part of it is I was the leader of that office. And so it was important for me to know what to do to be able to help other people. What I didn't realize is that was creating a mindset for me that, in fact, um, told me that I know what to do in an emergency. And so when one happened, it was not a leap to be able to just focus and say, you know what to do. And so during the past 22 years, I have talked a lot about not being afraid, but I realized that we have not ever really talked about how to teach people to learn not to be blinded by fear, but rather to use the fear as a positive thing. So we're now writing a new book. 
And I think the title of the book is going to be Live Like a Guide Dog. And then there's a subtitle about walking with a guide dog and learning to control fear in your life. And it's all about helping people to understand that you can be a person who can control fear. And we talk about ways to prepare. So um, it'll be out, we think, next year. And we, we just have submitted the first real version of it to um, the publisher and we're we're working through all the edits and all that. So it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I hope you'll come back. Michael, I'd really love to talk about the guide dogs you've had over the years. In addition to Dog Eared, I have a show called Health Power. Now, I've been in health media for 24 years, radio, TV, and podcasts. And I really care about not just what I put in my body, but what I put on my body. So I am absolutely in love with One Earth Body Care. Now, I extend that to my pets. I'm very careful about what I feed them, and I'm very careful about what I put on them. So I was so excited to find out that One Earth Body Care also has pet shampoo bars, which are phenomenal. They're gentle with organic oatmeal to soothe skin. Their neutral pH matches your pet skin pH. Last 20 plus washes for large dogs and they're scented with pet friendly essential oils. They also have a skin fix for pets, organic coconut, sunflower, and jojoba oils. It has calendula, which stimulates healing. It's great for hot spots, itchy patches, and their nose and paws. It's edible ingredients, safe to lick, and it's available with lavender, oil, or unscented. So I highly recommend you go to oneearthbodycare.com, click on pets, and get these for your pets. And while you're there, you can get wonderful things for your hair, your face, and body, and more. Again, oneearthbodycare.com. I was thinking about your second golden, uh, Holland. Holland, yeah. And you said that he was a good steady dog. And then after Holland, <laughs> this made me laugh. You had Klondike. Klondike. You had bad, yeah. had bad gas. <laughs> well, he had a little bit of that, yeah. <laughs> and then Lenny was next. Lenny. And then Lenny. And then poor Lenny got Lyme disease. That was terrible. Well, she, and then morphed into a kidney disease, actually, glomerular nephritis. So she only worked three years, but she lived with us for three more years. And um, one of our pastors of church called her an old soul because she could sense and always want to gravitate to the person, as our one of our pastors put it, who needed her the most, who was in the most pain. Now, it wasn't physical. It was mental pain. And she could sense that. And so if she was off harness and we had a party or anything going on, she'd work the room, but she always went to the person who needed her most first. Oh, that is really sweet. Now, what advice would you have for somebody listening who might know somebody who is looking into getting a guide dog? Any advice? Well, first of all, guide dogs aren't for everyone. Second of all, you can't use a guide dog effectively unless you are capable of being aware of your surroundings and know how to travel and know where you're going. Don't expect the dog to be the one to lead you around. It shouldn't be that way. And I know many people who do. Um, but the reality is don't, that's not the reason to get a guide dog. Don't do it for that reason. Do it because you want to be able to walk more safely, but you have to be the one to take the initiative. If you don't know how to do that, then there are places that can teach you. For example, I'm the vice president of the board of the Colorado Center of the Blind, which, or for the Blind, which is an organization where people can go and live for months to learn blindness skills, including how to travel independently and so on and how to cook and, and other things like that. And so the, the reality is learn the skills. I know people who are 80 years old who go to a center like that to learn more about blindness because they've been losing eyesight or they've lost their eyesight and they don't want to just sit on a couch all day and they don't need to sit on a couch all day. 
what you learned from Sharon and you've put it in your own life and the fact that you're helping other people with this, I think is so important. You know, one of the things too, that I thought was really beautiful is you write about Squire and this is an exact quote, but you talk about your relationship with Squire, how it's comparable to the first time you fall in love. Talk to us about that. It, it, it is sort of because the reality is if you become a guide dog user, <clears throat> What you are creating, if you do it right, is as every bit a close-knit team as a marriage or what the military does with SEAL teams or anything else where they have a very close-knit team where people really are able to know and work with their colleagues, complete each other's sentences, and so on. Um, And so it is very much like that. And the reality is, if you are working well with a guide dog, you establish that kind of a relationship. Now, unfortunately, the other side of it is that it is a relationship that can be easily damaged or destroyed. For example, um, and I talk about it a little bit in in Thunderdog, but um, other cases where you're walking down the street and suddenly a dog comes up and attacks you, your dog, um, because people don't keep their dogs on leashes. And I've seen situations where guide dogs were attacked and become very fearful. And so the result is that it takes a lot of work, if it can be done, to restore the relationship uh, between person and dog. Because no matter what, if the dog is fearful, you can try all you want, but the dog was attacked. And and the, the reality is dogs don't do what if. Dogs don't worry about things unless they're specifically directly threatened. So on September 11th, there was nothing that happened with Roselle that directly threatened her. So after it was over, we went home and I took her harness off and she took off to go find her favorite tug toy and start playing tug of war with Linny, even though she didn't even want to go outside. She just wanted to go out and play tug of war. It was over. And it it never did affect her because dogs don't do what if. And there was nothing that threatened her. But the bond is a very close-knit one, but there are things that can seriously damage it, like dog attacks and so on. And there is absolutely not one single solitary excuse for people letting their dogs run loose um, and for people not doing a better job of making sure that their dogs just don't go off and attack dogs um, and, and people around them. Uh, you know, I understand that I could be walking down a sidewalk and the dog thinks that we're on their territory because I'm walking across their yard on a sidewalk, but still the dog shouldn't be running loose in the first place. And yeah, that's then if crazy. It, and then if it happens, don't deny it. Oh, my dog would never do that. Well, your dog just did do it. You know, um, the, the reality is owners have a responsibility and those people could have just as close knit a relationship with their dogs as we have with guide dogs. If they really choose to do it, dogs want someone to tell them the rules. They want to know what the rules are and to obey the rules. They really do. And if you're not doing that, then you're doing a disservice to the relationship and you're doing a disservice to your dog. Yes, absolutely. Now, all dogs have different personalities. I mean, there's certain, you know, traits and labs that kind sure. of run across them, right? But what was what was it like getting to know each individual guide dog? And were there certain things that stood out about each one? And that was like, oh, wow, that's different than Squire or, you know, Klondike does this or, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, they were all different. Um, 
so I, um, I met Alamo, my current Black Lab, in February of 2018. And what I usually do when I get a new guide dog is when, when uh, we're introduced, and Alamo kind of sniffed around and eventually came over to me and talked a little bit. And then the, uh, the, the trainer said, you know, go ahead and call him and, and pet him and all that. And then I took him back to our room. What I usually do is I'll sit down on the floor and tell the dog to lay down and we start to just kind of talk and I'll pet the dog and all that and just really pay attention to the dog for the rest of the day. Alamo would have none of that. I sat on the floor and the next thing I know he is all 60 pounds completely <laughs> in my lap. Oh yeah, he's the but lap one. He's the lap one. And it turns out that that that's what he does. Um, so Squire came right up to me when we met. Um, Holland walked around a bunch, but then came over. And with every one, there are a lot of similarities, but they're different. The personalities are different. Roselle wasn't originally afraid of thunder, but when we moved to New Jersey, it was something that began to affect her. So if there was a thunderstorm, we knew it in advance. Africa, my seventh guide dog, and um, they never told me about this, loved to eat paper. And uh, so we had to keep Bathroom doors closed so she wouldn't pull a roll of toilet paper across the floor. We had to keep other papers on counters away from her. And there was just no getting her to stop. Now, the really big problem with that was that we had decided to adopt a breeder dog from guide dogs, the dogs who who are their, their breeding stock. And the dog's name was Fantasia. That was Africa's mother out of her second litter. And unfortunately, Africa along the line sort of taught Fantasia to go after paper too. So we really had challenges. <laughs> but you know, every dog is different. Right? Meryl, Meryl, my sixth dog, I describe as having a type A personality. She could not leave work alone. She would follow me around at home. And if the other dogs wanted to play, she would kind of curl her lip at them. She just literally wouldn't do that. And that level of activity and that lack of being able to relax caused her not to want to guide after about 18 months. She became too stressed. And mm -hmm. guiding is very stressful because the dogs do take it seriously. But with Fantasia, it just became overwhelming. So every dog is different. Roselle. Roselle was a dog who, when I was uh, going to get her, as I told the trainers, I want a dog with an on-off switch who could understand that when the harness goes on, you focus. And when the harness comes off, then you can play, but not until. And she was great at that. Oh, that's great. Now, what's it like when it's time for them to retire and you're keeping them as your family pet? Does it take them a while to get used to, oh, wait, I'm not working. Where's the harness? Or do they just kind of fall into it? Everyone is different. So I'll talk about Africa going to Panama, to Alamo. Um, Panama was a golden retriever that we adopted along the way. She was never a guide dog, but I'll, I can talk about her later. But so Alam, Africa going to Alamo, um, I knew at the beginning of 2017 that Africa wasn't seeing it was well at night. She was starting to slow down. She had been working since 2008 and I understood all of the, the, the issues. So I knew it was time to start to work toward retiring her and contacted guide dogs and they agreed. So in February of 2017, we started the process. One of the things that I did then was to leave her home more when we we're doing like little local trips or whatever. When I traveled and spoke, Africa always went along and, you know, she was guiding. It was out of the area. But for around home, I started using her less. And um, so 
when she retired, we also still had Fantasia and then we were going to be getting a new dog. So that would be three dogs in the house. And I knew that Karen being in a wheelchair wouldn't really be able to always handle two dogs by herself. And that's your wife, Karen. That Karen mm-hmm. was my wife, right? She yes. passed away last November. Oh my and goodness. I'm so After 40 sorry. years of marriage. But Oh, Michael, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, she's still up there watching. If I misbehave, I'm going to hear. The body just didn't move as fast as the spirit. But um, we decided, and, and the Alamos, or excuse me, Africa's puppy raisers said that they wanted to be able to uh, take Alamo or take Africa if we ever found that we couldn't keep her. So we had arranged with them to come and get her, and she was going to go live with them. So when they came on the 9th of February, two days before I went off to get my next dog, they came up. They put their leash on Africa, and as they were leaving, Africa just walked out the door without a backward glance. Thank you very much, Africa, for all your loyalty. Um, We went and visited her several times, and so that was great. But still, um, she was pretty used to it. Now, Lenny got ill very quickly, Mm. as you know, and then Roselle came along. And Roselle and Lenny were great at creating games, and one of them was – can we fool Mike and he'll put the harness on the wrong dog? And so um, many times Linny was the first dog to be there when I wanted to to put the harness on to go to work or whatever. And I had to look pretty carefully to make sure I was getting the right dog. (laughs) But it was a game, you know, and Linny liked being home because Linny had Karen all to herself at that time. So it worked out okay. But but still, um, every dog is different, and sometimes they really do want to continue to work. So I do think that we need to work when a dog is going to retire to get them used to the idea of not guiding as much. I guess you'd have to have another guide dog, right, before you retire. Maybe is there some kind of overlap? Not necessarily. It it all depends. You know, um, we had planned on Holland's retirement, and I was going to go get another dog. But Holland actually passed three weeks before I was going to go up and get my next dog, oh, who was going to be Klondike. Right. Um, it's it's different. If it all goes well, um, one retires and you go off to get the other one at the at the same time or very close to it. But again, for me, being able to use a cane was helpful because I was certainly capable of traveling independently without a guide dog. But my preference is to use a guide dog. Yes, I would definitely think, you know, that would be the case. Now, Michael, what do you hope people take away from Thunderdog? I would like people to take away the fact that blindness isn't the problem. It's the lack of um, people understanding about blindness. That's the real issue. Eyesight is not the only game in town. Um, Any of us could be at any given time put in an unexpected emergency or stressful situation. You can learn to be able to control your fear and not let it overwhelm, or as I put it, blind you. I want people to understand what guide dogs do and don't do. So I think those are kind of the the major lessons. And that, that in reality, disability doesn't mean a lack of ability. And there is no reason not to be able to hire blind people just like you would hire anyone else. And the reality is blind people tend to be very loyal to people who hire them because we know how hard it is to get a job. The unemployment rate among employable blind people today is still in the 65% range. So it's so hard to get a job. So if we get a job, we're going to do our best to hang on to it. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. Was there anything else you wanted to add? And I definitely want to have you back when your new book comes out. I'm so excited. Well, I'm really, um, you know, excited to to do it. I would would say to people that I do continue to travel and speak worldwide. So, if anyone is looking for a speaker to come and tell a motivational story, like what what happened on September 11th, or if they'd like to learn more about moving from diversity to inclusion, and that's a speech I give because. If you ask people to define diversity, they very rarely, if ever, talk about disabilities as part of that. So um, I do deliver talks of motivational keynote speeches and educate people about blindness and so on along the way. And I also do sessions about inclusion and diversity. I work for a company called Accessibe, A-C-C-E-S-S-I-B-E. That's a company that makes products that help make websites more accessible and usable by people with a variety of different kinds of disabilities. And people can visit accessibility.com and actually, if they have a website, they can do an audit of their own site and discover how accessible it is or it isn't. And accessibility can help address that. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that that's something that people should be more aware of because only about 2% of all websites in the country have really put in the codes to make themselves and, and their their products more accessible to people with disabilities. And the reality is the Americans with Disabilities Act is very clear in in this country and in other countries, it's happened as well that the law states very clearly, um, or departments like the Department of Justice in this country have said, the internet is a place of reasonable accommodation. It's a business and you need to make your sites accessible. It's a really, really fantastic book. I'm not at all surprised. It's a New York Times bestseller. Again, Thunderdog, the true story of a blind man, his guide dog, and the triumph of trust. Can you spell the website for me? Or for us? www.michaelhingson.com. That's www.michaelhingson.com. And I mentioned Accessibility. That's www.accessibility.com. And also, um, it started out um, even before joining Accessibility that I wanted to look at doing podcasts. And then when I joined Accessibility, they said, we'd love a podcast to just help inspire the world. And that's how we created Unstoppable Mindset, where inclusion, diversity, and the unexpected meet. So if people visit www.michaelhingson.com slash podcast, they can learn about the podcast or wherever you find podcasts on Spotify and iTunes and all that you can um, can go listen to it. We love people to do that. If anyone thinks they could be a guest or know of anyone who wants to be a guest, we're always looking for guests. And you can reach me through the contact form on michaelhingson.com. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you so much. And everybody, keep coming back to Dog Eared. If you want to check out my good boys, you can see them all over my social media on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Lisa Davis MPH. You can also see my beloved good boys who are waiting for me at the Rainbow Bridge someday, Bobo and Bailey. And also check out Health Power. Lots of great stuff. Thanks so much. Have a great day. <laughs>